Let's go. What's up, Ian? Hey, how's it how's it going? Just uh, having uh, having some technology uh, issues this morning, but uh, everything's good now. So. That's all that life's about. And, and look, we've done this once before, so let's not pretend. We did try to do this last week, and we got a little glitching here and there. Um, but yeah, hey, welcome, welcome to this lo-fi experiment, the yeah. sweathead. And ironically, I'm trying to remove all the friction from the things that I want to do. If I want to write, I write. If I want to draw, I draw. If I want to do a video interview, apparently that takes two weeks. Uh, and uh, you're the, yeah. the, the sort of third experiment in this, but I uh, thank you for your patience. Um, so for those who don't know, very, very quick introduction, and we're going to get into it. This is Ian Pritchard, or Pritchard. Uh, how do you say your last name, actually? Uh, uh, Pritchard, I think, is the yeah. proper Welsh uh, way to say it. Yeah. No, I get confused. You know, I move around America, and it, everything's confusing. The yeah. pronunciation and the heavy landing on the first syllable at times. So we've got Ian, Ian Pritchard, and Ian is spelled E-A-O-N. And if you want to find him on Twitter, uh, it's at E-A-O-N-P, so at E-N-P. And uh, you recently released a book called uh, Where Did It All Go Wrong? You're currently in Melbourne, despite your accent, and your running strategy at Universal McCann in Melbourne. So thank you. So where did it all go wrong? What do you mean by all? Uh, interesting. Yeah, wasn't expecting that. Um, I guess... Um, so, I mean, this um, this is not in the book, right? Because I only read this afterwards, and I thought I wished I wished I'd uh, had it. But there's a thing uh, in sort of uh, in philosophy that they call uh, Hanlon's razor, and uh, and this sort of razor says never uh, attribute to malice, uh, which is easier explained by stupidity, uh, but don't rule out malice. Right. I thought that was quite sort of fun, you know. So just th thinking about about the book, it was, you know, where it all, I guess, is is the advertising business, and somewhere, and there's, there's not just one thing. There's a, there's a number of things, and I think it's a mixture of those two things of stupidity and malice, and somehow over the last 10, 15 years, and this has coincided with the sort of uh, you know, with the rise in technology as, a, as sort of driving the industry, there have been some bad actors in there so where the malice comes from. I mean, it's, um, you know, we're riddled with fraud, data leakage, you know, all these kind of byproducts of, uh, of technology. And then also kind of maybe stupidity is a bit harsh, but definitely ignorance on behalf of, of those of us in, in the industry who've kind of stood back and been a little bit dazzled by technology and we've kind of handed the keys over to, you know, at the sort of nicer end is probably our Silicon Valley overlords, uh, Google and Facebook, you know, despite the bad press, you know, that they get. But probably on the darker side, the sort of, you know, numerous third party ad tech kind of mysterious nefarious uh characters that are lurking about in the in the background but you know siphoning off all the money so somewhere those forces have kind of uh, conspired um to leave us in a place where i think what used to be a sort of noble profession uh, has now descended uh, into the murky depths of something less than uh, 
less than noble. You know, I think we've got a bit of a struggle, I think, to claw ourselves out of that, uh, out of that hole. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's the all, <laughs> I guess, is, you know, which is sort of, you know, which is, which is everything. And that's not, you know, I think, you know, my, it's not just my point of view. I think I ended up putting the book together because, and I say this on the back cover, so it's like there's a proto meme beginning to sort of gain some steam, you know, and this is lots of, you know, you and I included and many others are, are kind of looking in at what we're doing and thinking, hang on a minute, there's something not right here. Uh, and sort of trying to put our finger on it. Um, I'm, putting, I'm, I'm putting my finger in it. That's, and then yeah. my head. Like I'm, I'm going full body in. It's not just a finger on it. It's full. It's a, it's full body in. Um, by the way, the the light in many New York apartments is so terrible because there's usually like one little light from the 1920s in the corner. I've, I've got this light shining at me, and I yeah. feel like having a mug shot. Uh, but apart from that, it's like a, it's kind of like David Byrne in some kind of like you know early Talking Heads kind of video. It's got that kind of feel. That's, that's so appropriate because like, it's, all, it's all art for me. From now on, like everything I do is just like as arty as I can get. Um, yeah. But is it fair to say that in that question, other than, you know, we'll talk about nostalgia in a second because as we age, obviously we can get accused of nostalgia. Do you feel that we had it right as an industry? Um, I mean, you know, it, the, the way your mind works, everyone's mind works, you kind of filter out the the bad, you know, and uh, but, you know, I, <laughs> uh, and so you know, there's always there's always been sort of you know rubbish, uh, you know. I don't know. I just um, there's something there's something about there there was there's um there's a great book actually by Paul Feldwick uh, called The Anatomy of Humbug, and uh, so Paul was a sort of legendary British planner from the you know back in the sixties you know, I think he's out of the industry now. He's still sort of commenting. But he's, in the book, he kind of looked at all of the sort of pop... ...added his own one and at the end. And this was influenced by... Um, uh, he's very interested in the old American medicine show thing from back in the day and Barnum and all that kind of stuff. And he talks about it as sort of humbug, you know, and he said, really, you know, it was a song and a dance to get people in the mood to buy. And, and, and that, that's what advertising used to be. This has nothing to do with channels, whether it's television or this or that or whatever. It was kind of about, it was about a little bit of sort of entertainment or interest, you know, to bring a brand to people's attention. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, I think, the spirit is what, is what has been lost. It's become, it's not now about entertainment or earning a, you know, a piece of attention, it's become much more nefarious in its data-driven nature. Right? Uh, Which is not to say that, you know, I mean, data has always been important. Um, but it's, um, you know, it's the way that these things are being used and it erodes that kind of trust. Uh, you know, I mean, you can't trust what people say. Yeah. But, but, you know, broadly speaking, I think we're at a low point in terms of... Um, the public's uh, trust of. Okay, so so you think we're at a low point, you think we had a high point, and you think some yeah. of that is being driven by data. In your book, you talk uh, about data and you, or data, I never know how to say any of these words anymore, data, data, data. Yeah, and, tomato, tomato. And you, you, you sort of talk about it in a way that I relate to as well, 
in a broader way that someone who might have studied statistics might think about it. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, I, I mean, I should point out, I came to statistics and maths late in life. <laughs> Uh, you know, when I was at school, I mean, I was so bad. But, you know, in the in the UK, they have, uh, you know, when you're at school, you do two types of exams. You do O levels, which is your basic qualification. Then you can go on to do A levels afterwards. I was so bad at maths, they didn't even let me sit the O level. Then somehow, at the stroke of about 40, something went off in my head. And then I had this sort of basic understanding of statistics and a little bit of uh, of math. So that was a big sort of revelation, you know, and probably, uh, you know, as a planner, you need to be reasonably numerate. <laughs> so I've managed to bluff my way through it up until that point. Um, but yeah, I mean, just, you know, having having models to work with, you know, so you know, typically, well, this is how a category behaves. Uh, you know, these are the typical distributions. So then when you see some data that deviates from that, you think, well, either the data is wrong or there's something else going on uh, that we need to investigate. So it, you, it's not necessary to be a sort of analyst, but, but once you have those models, you know, then you can look at numbers and see what, and see what they mean. Mm -hmm. um, so so how, how, do you, how do you think about the word data? It's inf you know it's a fancy word for information, uh, and so and information comes from all all kinds of sources you know but now we call it data or, or data because that sounds sexier, um, <clears throat> but it's, you know it's like what Stanley Pollitt or people like that used to say you know the, your job as a planner is to use all the information available in order to solve a client's problem so you know that means. You know, sales data, you know, shape of markets. But then there's all kinds of other information, you know, observational data, things that you see happening. Um, you know, so it's always been driven by, or it should be driven by information. Mm -hmm. um, but, but we've fetishized big data or big data, uh, you know, in, in recent years, probably just because there's so much of it about that, that, that we think we need to use it all. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was having a little sort of argument with someone the other day about you know how little data you need to make very very big inferences you know about, uh, about an audience you know like one data point is enough you know if you can work out if people are conservative leaning or liberal leaning that one data point can tell you loads and loads of information about what they're likely to respond to in terms of you know uh, uh, the nature of a message for instance just by knowing that one thing. Totally, totally. So in, uh, I came across this when I was doing powerlifting. I know I don't look like a powerlifter right now, but about five years ago, I was, uh, how heavy am I now? Maybe 10, 15 kilograms heavier. And there's a, there's a concept called uh, minimum required effort, which is not just about powerlifting. I just came through it. And a lot of people yeah. have run experiments as far as what's the least I need to do to get the most gains as far as strength. And yeah. I'm a huge believer in minimum required effort as far as, research goes and I had probably five or six years where I totally got pushed off my off my center through the fear of data and I'm deliberately aggressively focused on qual qualitative research right now and 
heightening the emotion when I interview people about things and I approach it more from a journalistic angle because I'm trying to listen. I've interviewed thousands yeah. of people. I'm, I'm trying to find words and hear things that I haven't heard before and I'll, I'll latch onto that. But if you're in a company, it's easy for you and us, to, you, you and I to say these, some of these sorts of things because we've, we've been around and we have sometimes had positions of authority. If you're, a lot of people who are watching this are starting out or a few years into doing a strategy role, if they're in an environment that is very, like you don't exist, like the statistic is the insight. If they're in an environment where the statistic is the insight, what, how can you navigate that? There's a great little book written in about, I think it's about 1939 or something. And I think the guy's name is Daniel Huff. Maybe you know it. It's called How to Lie with Statistics. Okay. And it's a, it's a short book. It's only about 100 pages, quite big type. Uh, but it's got seven or eight key statistical kind of concepts and models and things to watch out for, how things are displayed, how they can fool you. And you can probably, you know, I think you can, actually that book is so old now it's in the public domain so anyone's watching this just google it and you can probably download it um you know and I've, I've got a copy of that in my desk drawer and you know basically whenever i'm presented with a spreadsheet or some kind of distribution chart you know i i refer to that say right what am i looking at right and what what are the pitfalls what do i need to watch out for you know things like the semi-attached figure you know, which is a, you know, an irrelevant data point that's, you know, kind of stuck in somewhere to distract you. you know? what's, an, what's an example of that um, to put you on the spot? Well, it'd be like, you know, so not necessarily just in, in, in sort of numbers, but, you know, like you'll get toothpaste, you know, you know, so, you know, you whiter than white toothpaste with added, you know, Zygon sphere or something. Yeah. You know, nobody knows what the fuck that is, mm -hmm. but it makes it sound scientific, you know, yeah. so... So it's kind of stuck in there to sort of distract you. So on, um, on that, in my first year in America, ooh, not mentioning names just in case, but I did find that there was a, a style of statistic that was used in public by companies that I didn't come across in Australia in 15 years. And that was to say something like 5% more protein, for example. Yeah, yeah. And it's like compared to what? And compared to what? compared to itself. Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen I'd never seen that in fifteen years. Yeah. Is that is that an example of what you're talking about? That, that, that's an example. Yeah. It's a sort of uh, um, well it's a, you know, it's a sort of relative, you know, uh, data point. I, I love the I love the other I can't remember what the name for this is, but it's kind of this is a good way, this is a little trick in advertising to get past kind of uh, you know, making claims that cannot be substantiated, you know. So it's just like thirty percent more awesome. For instance, you know, so it's kind of the abstract scale. You, know, you, miss, so you, can, you miss the the from awesome. You have you have to put a the in or in front of the adjective. All so, right, you know, like sixty six percent more the awesome or more the, right. like yeah. Bring me the. I'm joking. It's a bad okay. joke. Let's get into some of the um, like because you you cite quite a few. Well, you, you get into sort of some pop and subcult not pop but subculture and musical references and and type. Yeah back into uh, social research for the most part. Big part of what you talk about is the idea of incompetence and you do mention the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah. Please explain that. Okay, so, um, well, the Dunning-Kruger effect. So there were two, uh, two psychologists, uh, David Dunning and Justin Kruger, uh, and they 
noticed that there was a, a story in, in the local Pittsburgh newspaper uh, of a guy called MacArthur Wheeler, who'd been a bank robber. <clears throat> and he'd robbed two banks in broad daylight in Pittsburgh, and this was in 1995 or something. Um, and then he'd, you know, uh, uh, with no disguise or anything. And so he'd been picked up by the cops a couple of hours later. Um, but the surprising thing was that his indignation, he was absolutely, you know, flabbergasted that he'd been caught. Because before he'd robbed the banks, he'd read somewhere that uh, uh, lemon juice was used in the manufacture of uh, invisible ink. So he'd rubbed his face with lemon juice, uh, taken a picture of himself with one of these Polaroid cameras, the one where the picture comes out the bottom of the camera. Uh, but he'd mis-aimed his shot, uh, and the picture came out of a blank wall. And so he was convinced he was invisible uh, and went off to, to rob these banks. Uh, the, uh, so uh, Dunning and Kruger sort of saw this, and they thought, this is something weird going on here. What's going on in his mind? Um, and then this sort of uh, coincided with the, the rise in popularity of TV talent shows. Uh, and so you'll get something like America's Got Talent. Uh, and in the, in the auditions, you get these people who, who clearly have no talent whatsoever uh, and think they sound like Mariah Carey, you know, but just make a racket. And they put those two things together and came up with this theory of, of kind of uh, incompetence. So, so people like the uh, talent show hopefuls and uh, MacArthur Wheeler, uh, were too, you know, MacArthur Wheeler was too stupid to be a bank robber, uh, but he was also too stupid, you know, to, to have the knowledge to know how stupid he was. So it's this kind of cycle of stupidity. Uh, and so <clears throat> I sort of, um, you know, thought that was sort of quite uh, amusing. Uh, and I thought there's a, the uh, photographers talk about the Dunning-Kruger peak of photography. Uh, which is what, you know, you get a camera and you go about and you start taking shots and you think you're a great photographer uh, in, in the beginning. But then, of course, as time goes on, you realize how terrible you are. And they call this the Dunning-Kruger peak. So I borrowed that and I said, right, there's the Dunning-Kruger peak of advertising, where we've kind of, uh, you know, successfully, in, in inverted commas, uh, raised a, a generation of advertising professionals who are, you know, extremely confident, um, but for the most part, ignorant. Um, and, you know, and that's, you know, I think that's, uh, when I talked at the beginning about malice and stupidity, I think that's this sort of stupidity component. Um, what, what, are the, what do you think are like the three main things that they're ignorant about? Um, well, I think there's a, and you know, we've, I think, you know, we've all experienced this, uh, and, you know, I mean, to an extent, it's my own story. Uh, I, got, I got hired, and I came out to Australia uh, eight years ago, uh, and I got hired in a sort of blaze of publicity. I'd been a big mouthpiece in London in the early days of social media and digital media and all that kind of stuff. And I was just caught up in a big Dunning-Kruger peak of my own, where I actually knew nothing. Yeah, I was extremely confident because I knew how to use Twitter, right? <laughs> and so I thought that was all there is to know about, about modern advertising, you know? Uh, now, you know, the difficulty is uh, when, you know, you have some kind of, you know, it's not really an epiphany, but, you know, events conspire. And then you, you get to the point where you realize, hang on a minute, 
I've had a sort of reasonably long and moderately successful career uh, not having the first clue uh, what I'm actually talking about, you know, and that's then that's sort of quite a, a, a moment, you know. And then, um, how do they call that now? In you know what they call that now? White male well, privilege. White male privilege. That's what that is. Okay, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't get me started on that, but um, yeah. No, you know. I don't. I don't just like push a button. I like stick my head <laughs> into the, oh, yeah, the button. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, but so without getting into the politics, but, but, you know, we have, I think we've got, there's, there's a, there's a whole sort of generation now really of, uh, of people who've come into the industry, probably with best intentions, you know, they're not bad people, but uh, they have a small amount of knowledge, but overestimate what, what that is. And without really that sense of, of, uh, you know, there's a sort of year zero almost approach where like everything started in 2007. You know, but there's a long, long history um, uh, uh, before that and lots of stuff to be learned um, uh, from that. And, th and that's kind of been sort of rejected. And I think to our peril, because that's what's contributed. You know, it's one of the things that's contributed to the mess we're in. So now. is it fair to say, you know, so the, the question was about are there, what are three things that people can do to that oh, ignorance? But, but what I feel I'm hearing and, and in the book as well is to try to have some sense of healthy self-doubt yeah absolutely i mean it's about uh, you know one of the things that i i sort of learned and this was through um just being interested in, in science you know and the scientific method um so the, there's a sort of scientist joke which is uh, science is wrong and that's why we can trust it because uh, it's a continuous process of figuring out how the world works uh, and I got interested, in, like a lot of people, I think, when Dan Ariely's first popular books came out, I got interested in sort of behavioral economics. And, and that was the kind of rabbit hole into, you know, broader sort of human psychology. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, um, and the big thing I'm interested in just now is evolutionary psychology. So that's the ultimate reasons, you know, for behavior. And so then you can look at all of these new developments in media and technology through through that lens. Um, and, you know, it's a kind of, you know, cliche to say technology changes and people don't. And this, but it's, it's true. You know, the, the mind, the human mind, you know, hasn't really significantly evolved uh, in, you know, possibly 10,000 years, more likely over 100,000 years. So we're walking about in this modern world um, with mental equipment that was designed for a completely different environment. Mm -hmm. And so when you understand that, then all of these things like cognitive biases and everything make total sense um, from an evolutionary standpoint, because things that were useful in a different environment can trip you up in the modern environment. Yeah. So, so Ian, let, let's, because I, I mean, I, list, I have a feeling you and I listen to very similar podcasts and read similar. <laughs> Um, let, can we zoom into um, the agency world now? Because the idea of having healthy self-doubt and confidence is going to feel really uncomfortable for a lot of people. And yeah. as I was thinking through this as, as you were talking, not so much about the evolution part, but about those two dynamics, I, th I think when you're starting out, the, the most immediate presence of that dynamic is to be in a meeting and say, 
I don't know, but let me get back to you. I'm going to find out. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a brilliant point. That's one of the hardest things, you know, for, for people to do, you know, because, uh, um, I don't know, there's such a, I mean, this is partly, you know, with our sort of data-driven kind of uh, environment, there's this requirement for certainty, um, you know, which is, um, which is very, very difficult, you know, you know, never make predictions, particularly about the future. Mm -hmm. um, what are some other, could you, could you think, um, yeah, it's funny, because when I, I don't even know if this is original, what I find disappointing about everything, I think, is I sometimes Google a, a phrase that I'm going to use in a, like an article headline, I'm like, oh, Nietzsche said that a hundred years ago or, or whatever, yeah. and someone else said the other thing too. And I'm like, oh, I'm a total fraud. Um, yeah. and, and, it's, and it's funny hearing you talk about the Dunning-Kruger effect. I mean, I was doing the internet from about 1996 or seven. I used to put on dance parties and our, our main uh, marketing channel was actually the welcome message in internet relay chat in a particular uh, chat room in, yeah, probably 1997 and $100 worth of posters. And then was running like an online community for 10 years around hip hop. And around 2008, I didn't want to write about all this stuff. And in 2008, a couple of things happened. I went to one or two conferences um, where I'm just getting a little sign from this thing I'm recording you in. We've got, we've got nine minutes left. This thing is telling me now, but it's okay. So I, I had two things happen. I don't know if you relate to these things. One is I went to a couple of conference. I went to a couple of conferences. I wasn't talking about anything to do with the internet. And a few people got up as social media gurus. And I was like, I've been doing that, like managing message boards <laughs> and like chat rooms and doing business out of that kind of thing and radio and whatnot for like a decade. And so I was like, maybe I've got something to offer here. Uh, and the thing that actually tipped me over was the recession in 2008 and not wanting to enter a room with all that pressure of people losing jobs without someone possibly having heard something that I'd spoken about before. So I had like the part of the Dunning-Kruger effect, but the, the second part, which is like complete self-doubt. And yeah. tonight, like I just finished a 70 slide hand-drawn presentation and I'm feeling fetal on the inside, despite yeah. the fact that, you know, we're, we're here right now. Um, but again, just, uh, I'm just, I'm just riffing now, but if we just bring it back to basic behaviors within an agency for someone, especially in their twenties, yeah. how do you have confidence and a healthy self doubt? What are some behaviors uh, that you can either have in internally or even publicly that, that show that, 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 that demonstrate that? I think, um, and what, one of the bits of advice, you know, it, you know, it never ceases to amuse me that, you know, students, for instance, come, uh, for career advice, you know, from me, <laughs> which I feel like saying, look at everything that I did and don't do that. <laughs> you know? But, um, you know, I think um, <clears throat> it's getting harder because, you know, what, you know, I don't want to get too much into this, but, but there's, there's a kind of, once people get over about 45, you know, they tend to get moved out of, of the agency. world but you know that those are the kind of people you have to seek out you know um, but just because that you know they've been around a long time they've seen all the uh, of, of you know all of this the same things you know so I always say go and just sort of seek out those uh, you know more experienced people and just pick pick their brains you know because you can um, you're, I'm looking at you and you've frozen, so I don't know if you can still hear me. I can hear um, you. All right. 
Uh, so you know, so there's so there's that thing. I'm just very. There's also, all right, <clears throat> and the and there's you know there's there's a whole. I mean, the brilliant thing about the internet, of course, is the whole history uh, uh, of this business and how we got to where we are and where we came from. All of that is available, and that you know that should be studied. You know, I think you need to know, um, you know, the the foundations uh, uh, that you're building from. Um, and then I think that helps with that skeptical thinking because then when you when you hear extraordinary claims about some new platform or whatever that's going to change everything, then you can look back and say, well, has this you know what what's happened in a, that, that's similar uh, to this in the past, and what and what was the impact? Um, you know, I think you can look at there's a little sort of rule of thumb which is looking at um, uh, in terms of uh, you know. Uh, how how long any new technology took to penetrate half of U.S. households? And you look at things like radio and television, which took like you know ten years, twelve years, and then you look at new things like you know wearable technology, Internet of Things, connected homes, and everything. And even at the trajectory they're on, in terms of getting that penetration, it's a long it's a long long way off. Mm. So the, this idea that technology is speeding everything up. Is actually you know a bit of a myth. Yeah. You know the big the big technological revolution was the internet, but everything else is just now built onto that uh, onto the internet. So um, yeah, so it's kind of you know I, I I think you know you can look you know you look at the history uh, uh, of the business. There's foundational ideas that still hold. Uh, you know with lots of new ways of reaching people for sure. And they need to be explored, um, but then sort of pair that with, you know, philosophy and, and human psychology, and you've got a good foundation, you know. Um, yeah. So a few well. themes, if I can try to summarize: healthy self-doubt, uh, yeah. ask ask around. You don't have to have all the answers. Try to explore the history of the industry that you're in, the people who've been in it, the thoughts that have come from it and the thoughts that have influenced it yeah. and uh are there any other key things around how not how not to be part of that dunning-kruger effect <laughs> well yeah i mean there's a little chapter in, in 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 the book a little bit about that i mean there's two big big mistakes that people made is one you know is speaking when when you should keep quiet and the other one is keeping quiet when you should be speaking um and so <clears throat> you know, I mean, the, the you know examples that uh, um, you know I, I give about. I, I, I use a little example out of the, the Godfather. You know, when uh, the, I think this is in Godfather One, uh, when um, the um, James Khan character, Sonny, uh, kind of you know speaks over the top of uh, Marlon Brando uh, when they're talking to a rival family. You know, and and so uh, well Don Corleone. So. And it says to him, never let anyone outside the family know what you're thinking. Yeah. And that's a difficult, you know, that sounds a little bit sort of, but it's a difficult thing to do, you know, because of social media and everything now, and everyone's blurting out every thought that comes into the head, you know. But um, I think when, you know, when you're in an agency, um, you, uh, you know, you have a duty to protect um, 
you know the the interests of the uh, of the agency, particularly around creativity and yeah. stuff like. You start to devalue that, then then you undermine the whole the whole agency. So, um, so, and then so on the theme of blurting out, you you mentioned Sturgeon's Law, and this is a debate that I have with a lot of people because I, yeah. I do I do think I've read numbers which talk yeah. about how high output does. I'll say connect, not cause or correlate. I'll say connect with a level of quality. Um, and then I have other people who will say, well, people, there's too much noise out there. People should take more responsibility for what they put out and put less out. And if they put less out, there'd be better stuff. Yeah. You, what are your personal thoughts? And also, could you explain Sturgeon's Law? Sure. Well, Sturgeon's Law... Uh, states so uh, Theodore Sturgeon is a science fiction or was a science fiction author critic screenwriter and all that and and he was quite a sort of defender of, of the genre uh, and and so the, there's a story he was at some conference and the New York Times literary critic uh, made some comment uh, about uh, something he'd written and also about the genre and said 90% of all science fiction is crap and uh, Sturgeon thought about that for a minute and, and realized that the critic was, was really saying nothing because science fiction conforms to the same uh, quality criteria as any other literary form or art form. Uh, and so 90% of everything is shit. Um, now, you know, I find that, you know, that's kind of interesting because when you look at when new things come up like content marketing or influencer marketing, for a little while, we seem to let that be exempt from Sturgeon's law. And we say, because it's new, everything about it is great. But of course, everything is not great. 90% of it is, is, is shit. And so, you know, that's an important critical thinking tool, you know, which is not, it's not to, you know, it's popular uh, in certain quarters to kind of diss everything about digital media and everything about content marketing. And that's, that's not fair because there is some, some good, but it's a small percentage, you know, so it's getting that balance, you know, don't call everything out as shit, but you know, look for the good. But in terms of, you know, as an individual, you know, your own output, whether it's, you know, writing blogs or making videos or just even in, you know, developing ideas with, with colleagues and contributing to a creative process. I think quality comes from quantity, you know? And so it's that process of getting a hundred things onto the wall, you know, to be able to find the five or six that, that might have some legs. Now, that's hard work, right? And it requires thinking and it takes time. Um, which, you know, one of the other things that's kind of gone wrong, I think, in the industry is our, our just preparedness to give that kind of time and space for, you know, for proper critical thinking and creative uh, development to, to happen. You know, everything seems to have to happen so fast. Um, but, uh, you know, because of that natural law of 90%, you know, being rubbish, uh, yeah. You know, we, we need to sort of allow that process to happen. So, um. okay. So, from la final final question, uh, what do you feel optimistic about as far as this industry goes? Uh, what I'm really interested in at the, at the moment and uh, is 
uh, artificial intelligences. Um, it's uh, it's very very early early days, but definitely from a research point of view, I think uh, you know to be you know because of all the to make sense of all of that data that's out there, you know, it's too much for human brains to do. Um, we've got these built-in biases uh, around data, which you know you can't really battle against human nature. But uh, but I think that's that's what's interesting from a technology point of view. I think if we can get a handle on that, um, but you know, being able to look at that properly, philosophically and scientifically, uh, and seeing what what it can provide, you know, I think that could be, um, you know, that on the cusp of interesting things in terms of what we can learn about real uh, consumer behaviour um, through through that uh, technology. There's a guy called Philip Graves. I don't know if you come across his book Consumerology. He's one of the first really consumer psychologists to to popularise it. This was in the 90s, but he um he he sort of adapted a quote from Edgar Allan Poe right, for his own ends. But he said, you know, a good rule of thumb for for market research is trust nothing consumers say, trust about half of what you see them do, but trust nearly everything that the sales data tells you they have done. Um, and so, you know, it is funny, the, the, the whole sort of kerfuffle about the Facebook data breach or whatever. You know, that's the, if people are worried about privacy, that's the last thing they need to be worried about. So, because every time you use your credit card or debit card or spend a dollar, all of that data is being shared amongst, you know, all, all kinds of people, insurance companies, oh, right. uh, you know, that's... Uh, especially in uh, certain, especially in certain countries, that it tends to get shared yeah. a little bit more freely. All right, yeah. I think we're, we're, we're yeah. at time, but thank you so much for persisting. I realize this is the second time we've done it. For people who want to check out your book, Where Did It All Go Wrong? They can find it on Amazon and all parts of the internet, right? Yeah, well, Amazon worldwide and in uh, more discerning bookshops, but uh, I get more money if you buy it from Amazon. So, uh, so there's a buy from Amazon. <laughs> and uh, we can find you at ENP, which is spelled at E O N P on Twitter, Ian Pritchard. E A O N P. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Okay. Thanks, Mark. All the best, mate. All right. Good luck. Thank you.